2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today I am very pleased to welcome Kathleen Hale and Mitchell Brown, who are the authors of How We Vote, Innovation in American Elections, uh, new from Georgetown University Press. Uh, Kathleen, Mitchell, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. so I wonder if I could ask each of you, maybe we'll start with you, Mitchell, uh, just tell us a little bit about who you are uh, and what you do, and then maybe ask the two of you to talk a little bit about how you came to this particular project.
0: Sure. Um, so again, my name is Mitchell Brown. I'm a professor at Auburn University in the Department of Political Science, Broadly speaking, uh, what I do with my career is I'm interested in understanding more about how marginalized groups get power, and one of the ways that happens is through elections. So for the last decade or so, I've been working very closely with my good friend and colleague, Kathleen Hale, on election administration specifically and how that happens.
3: I am Kathleen Hale. I am also a professor in the Department of Political Science at Auburn University, where I also direct Auburn's graduate program in election administration. I came to this work um, from a different perspective, but it appears to have been complementary, which is to look at the organizational arrangements in government and with other other sectors the nonprofit sector and private uh, for-profit business and try to understand how those arrangements work and how those arrangements work effectively to improve capacity and to improve government capacity um, in particular elections are interesting in this context and have been for um, have been for quite some time because they are uh, a unique intergovernmental sort of um configuration unlike anything else in american in american public policy
2: so let's 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 start off by maybe digging into that uh uniqueness this is this is a book that that is is further evidence of my maxim that the things that people uh, may think are are most excruciatingly dull and boring are often the things that are most profoundly and essentially important that we understand uh, but one of the things that the book really does reveal is the extraordinary complexity and the, the, the deeply complicated environments uh, of American elections and uh, uh, of those who are responsible for making them function. So why don't we we start off maybe if if you all could just sort of lay out for listeners what is that context why why is it so complex and so difficult to effectively administer an election in the United States of America?
3: Well, I I'd, I'd, I'd suggest maybe that it's not difficult to administer per se, but the system itself is tremendously complex, and that. That creates pressures uh, for election officials that are different in every state uh, because states have, um, at the baseline, states have uh, constitutional authority along with the federal government and election operations are creatures of the state grounded in local practice. And so every state structures their offices differently. Every state structures the functions differently differently. in some states you see people uh, offices that are focus only on voter registration and in some they focus on the entire process uh, and and in addition to that, um, we have different different state laws and state rules and practices about what sorts of administrative processes are are permissible. Some states um, a, a good Perhaps a good example right now is this idea about voting by mail. Um, every state has some way for us to use the U.S. mail in voting, but it's described differently, and and different words mean different things in different states. Um, some states, like Colorado and Washington and Oregon, are what we call vote by mail states. Everybody gets a uh, everybody gets a ballot in the mail. Uh, In other states like Alabama, where where Auburn University is located, um, a process where we use the mail to vote is the absentee ballot process. Uh, There is no comparable vote by mail um, permitted, and you have to have an excuse to vote by absentee.
2: So it's i mean d- despite all of that right and and we can i think sort of look at that maybe the 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 ways in which that plays out in in different kinds of contexts. despite all of that 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 you both argue that in fact maybe contrary to what a lot of people think and even you will find some political scientists saying you argue that the story of american elections is actually largely a story of success can you can you walk us us through what you mean by that I think that that's a claim that I think might surprise a lot of people.
3: Sure. Um, and, I, and I'll start and then I want I want Mitchell to follow up on, on this. We have both been working with election officials for over a decade, um, traveling around the country in, in a variety of different venues, working in offices, in conferences and in, in different sorts of trainings. And, and we've observed that states, of course, um, are different in their structures and in their rules, et cetera. But we also thought beyond that that there were differences that we were seeing about how some jurisdictions, local jurisdictions in particular, were were better able to respond to the demands and crises um, and changing conditions and that they could actually use uh, this complex uh, environment as an opportunity to improve conditions. And quite frankly, our experiences around the country Just didn't match the drumbeat about how broken the election system um, is. That was not our sense from working with election officials and not what we were seeing. And so what we wanted to do then was see if there were common themes and practices or common conditions that were supporting what we saw as innovative practices and the innovations that we that we talk about in the book. And so and so we set about the business of doing research um, to see to see what we could find.
0: Yeah, I'll add to that, that uh, one of the puzzles that we were trying to tease out as we decided to write this book was about this conflicting narrative in the media, in large part, about how broken it the election system is, and you know, riddled with so many problems. And I won't just blame the media for this. I think a lot of it also comes out of political um, rhetoric because the election process itself has been so politicized in the last 10, 20 years. And, and, and contrasting that with our real experiences in working with election officials where w- what they were doing was working on real shoestring budgets and, and pulling off successful elections over and over again in different kinds of conditions with different kinds of pressures, where, where the two commonalities really that we saw was that, um, they were running elections and they were doing so on really meager budgets and with um, really paucity of resources compared to other functions of government. And we weren't seeing constant court cases or battles over the outcomes of elections. Elections happen all the time. They, it's not just every four years for president or every two years for members of Congress. They happen at the local level constantly. And so there's there's a real churn in if you if you dig deep in what happens in the election community, w- where the election cycle is happening, happening pretty constantly, w- with some ebbs and flows. And, and even in the face of real limited resources, th- there were very few real problems that we were seeing. And so part of our part of our impetus for writing this book was try to try and understand how people were are really pulling off these um, really terrific uh, functions of government at the local level with fewer problems than probably is in the narrative, and how they were able to really innovate and respond to changing concerns and laws and conditions and do so in a in a largely successful way.
2: So, I mean, it, one of the 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 things that that struck me throughout your your book is the. The 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 consistent, mostly implicit but then explicit argument that the calls that we would uh, benefit from nationalizing elections in one way or another. And different people tend to mean different things by that. Uh, you're not convinced that that necessarily would serve us well, and in fact, because of sort of what you see happening on the ground, you think that 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 the one of the risks of nationalizing election processes and procedures is that we would le- lose the innovation that we have seen from place to place innovation that often winds up getting shared through professional networks with other election administrators. So so to help listeners maybe understand that, can you talk about an example or two of, of sort of the ways in which you think these complicated, constrained circumstances have created innovations that you think ultimately uh, uh, help us do a better job in these basic democratic processes?
0: Yeah, why don't I jump in? This is Mitchell. Um, And and maybe to set the groundwork, I'll I'll give a real brief overview of what we do in the book. What we did was over a period of a couple of years, we traveled around the country, we visited election offices, we conducted in-depth interviews with election officials at the national, state, and local levels. This is at the local level, including large, medium, and small jurisdictions, some in urban areas, some in very rural areas. We ran focus groups, we did surveys, we looked at data other people have collected about elections and election administration. And then we spent some time really reflecting on what we would expect from the growing body of a literature about elections and election administration in terms of really trying to understand the the innovations that we saw and the spread of innovations that we saw and in an attempt to develop the most parsimonious model um, possible, which is, you know, what we're all trying to really do. (laughs) um, What we did was we teased out four main drivers of innovation. Um, these, These include Politics within states and localities, demands on the system, available resources for the system, and professionalism. Um, And one of the things that we were also really clear about as we did our analysis is that each of these four drivers working in conjunction with each other really work differently depending upon the state context in which um, the elections are run. And and so what we do then in the book is we get into the nuances of how these four factors work across the different state contexts looking at things like registration, convenience voting, um, largely mail-in ballots, but other parts of convenience voting as well, language assistance for voting, counting, technology, integrity, and security, and measurement, and really then try to develop the nuance of the stories about um, why innovation happens in some places, why innovation doesn't happen in other places, and how it gets spread. And the how it gets spread really speaks to to your question, which is about these um, networks of election administrators working in largely resource resource scarce environments and facing new and emerging challenges regularly, and sharing their own best practices with each other and trying to figure out how to take a best practice from one state where the rules are really different and maybe the institutions of government are really different with respect to elections and, and do something like that in their own state where the context is different but but the problems are really similar and, and moving to one single national approach to elections um, would in, inhibit the ability of election administrators to really respond to those local conditions in terms of both the the needs and the resources. Um, and, and let me stop there and see what Kathleen wants to add to that.
3: Um, sure, uh, the the differences across the states in terms of geography and. Demographics and the ability to accomplish a particular administrative feat easily, or more easily, or more, uh, or in a in a harder way, I think is is part of what part of what we're getting at. Um, the the um, even even with something like the Help America Vote Act, for example, the nationalization there of the effort to to require states to basically convert to electronic methods of voting rather than punch cards and uh, lever machines, Um, even in that kind of national legislation and the National Voter Registration Act, these federal laws specifically uh, leave it up to states to determine how things need to be done. And, And that's, you know, that's part of the constitutional imperative. Uh, that we we I guess has a as a fundamental assumption assumed that the constitutional imperative wasn't going away, and so if states are going to have flexibility, then uh, and and constitutionally so, then they need to be able to they need to be able to adapt their own approaches to fit the rules and practices and sort of the the system that they've constructed over you know a couple. A couple of centuries um or more now of course it it's states are states are always held in check by the um by national laws around um you know preventing discriminatory practices and and that sort of thing and so so we're not we're not arguing that states can can sort of run amok in in that direction but that um for administrative practices, you know, printing a ballot, deciding how you're going to count, uh, deciding when you're going to count election results. Um, you know, is it, is it within 72 hours? Um, is it within three weeks? Um, those, those aren't actually partisan questions. They're administrative process questions. And and those things are connected to other things that states states do well.
2: So so this is a question that is that is maybe slightly outside the four corners of the book but I'm I'm going to ask it anyway jumping off from that because we of course know um that we have a long history of concerns about uh uh, uh the ways in which variation in the conduct of elections from place to place has been undertaken explicitly in order to advantage or disadvantage one population or another. This is, of course, how we get the preclearance to, uh, provisions of the Voting Rights Act uh, and the concern that many have had since the Roberts Court has, has unwound uh, much of, of, of those, those conditions. I guess, I, I guess the question is, is...
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: do you worry about that trade-off, that that, 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 that sort of that that absolutely constitutional space that gives states the right, the ability to determine the time and manner of their elections, that because of our long history, particularly of racial discrimination, that that still creates opportunity for variation in access to the franchise.
3: Well, I think the the you know of course of course that's a concern. Of course, that's a concern. Um, and and you know the nationalizing nationalizing rules and practices hasn't actually um, eliminated some of those kinds of of behaviors. Although I think that uh, the Voting Rights Act certainly um, certainly was was an incredibly useful um, prophylactic tool and political tool. I think um, for the for the process, um, what what we do know, um, and this will sound like a little bit of a, of a cheerleading uh, exercise, but from working with election officials around the country, um, you know, many of them are elected officials themselves at the local level, um, in Florida and Colorado, for example. While others are appointed, uh, some work in very highly charged partisan environments, like Ohio and Missouri, where where. You know, being a card-carrying member of either party is a requirement of of participating in in the office and in the administration um, of of elections, and 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 yet, or perhaps because of that um, sort of overt um, layer of partisanship that you don't see in other areas of public policy, um, folks are scrupulous about adhering to the rule adhering to the rule of law. Um, Time and time again, we hear election officials say uh, something to the effect of, you know, I don't particularly care what the rules are. The legislature made the rules. I just want to know what they are so that I can enforce them on election day and so that I have time to set up the process that I know I need to use so that Everybody who is eligible to register can register, and everybody who's registered can vote and cast a ballot and have their ballot counted in the way that they um, intended um, I think the sort of the whip sawing that we saw in um, Wisconsin recently was a was an interesting example of of how how election officials are caught in a spot that is really um, prescribed for them by, by state policymakers. And typically that's legislators, legislatures, but, but now we see governors, um, governors involved in the, in the same sort of, um, space. Um, New York's a perfect example right now. Um, will there be a presidential primary, uh, for Democrats on June 23rd or not? Um, maybe yes, maybe no
0: yeah, uh, I, I, anything you want I, to add
2: in Mitchell, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah. no, I, I would I would add to that that there is really no question that having control over political institutions gives the people in control the power to potentially discriminate, to oppress, um, to Um, engage in harmful activities to other people uh, as a group. And there's no question that there's been a history of this with respect to elections in the United States. Um, And and so saying that, there is still a really important role um, for for any parts of government in in which government interacts with citizens or or residents, um, but in the case of elections, it's citizens. Um, So there's still a real important role for oversight and for advocacy groups to watch and to push against this. Um, But but our our experience with election officials has been um, really what Kathleen said, well-intentioned people who just want to do a good job within what they are legally allowed to do.
2: So uh, uh, in the time remaining, I want to look forward a little bit to the the November election for 2020. um in uh one of the the recent relief bills, uh as you well know, there was there was a, a significant sum of money allocated to states to distribute for uh beefing up uh elections. um, given what you all know about the manner in which, uh, those officials organize elections on the ground in states and localities. What's your impression of, of sort of the way that aid was structured, whether it's enough, uh, whether it is likely to be helpful. Can you help people think about how to evaluate that for if they don't maybe know too much about the area? Sure.
3: Um, in the current environment, um, and, may, and maybe even before the current environment, the amounts of money that are being uh, discussed and, and appropriated are, are breathtaking. Uh, that's that's really that's really true. Um, the the method of distributing to states is is an interesting sort of approach because um, um, you know on the one hand it's 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 uh, it's easier. There are fewer of them. Than there are election jurisdictions, for sure. Um, But distributing to states um, also creates the possibility within states of uneven distribution to local election officials um, or local election offices. Um, state, State offices may be involved in maintaining voter registration databases, but they don't actually conduct elections. The elections are conducted locally at the county level or the town and township level in some states, uh, there it's a it's an extremely localized function, and so uh, even even before the conversation has has been joined about the um, COVID packages of relief, even even previously with cybersecurity um, funds, um, the questions have been raised about whether the money is actually reaching. The um, reaching local offices where where it can do, where it can can be put directly um, directly to use. Um, I'll I'll also say that um, the the amounts of money may seem breathtaking, and they certainly do to me as a you know an average ordinary person. Um, but compared to the need, they're 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 very very it's very very thin very, very thin. Um, You might have noticed in the book that we we mentioned based on some studies that we did that the average share of a the average share if you were to compare a county election budget to the county budget as a whole is is less than is less than 1%. Um, and so that's not that's not a lot. That's when Mitchell mentions being under resourced. Um, it's ex- it's 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 an understatement. <laughs> and so yes, this is a lot of money. It's a great start. Election officials, I'm sure, are grateful. Um, it doesn't it it.
2: They're still going to be ex- under resourced.
3: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And Mitchell, I know you've had conversations about this too. So please.
0: Yeah, I, I would say that one of the when you look at the bills that have been out in the last couple of years and the money made available to the States for elections uh, through the States to the localities, in uh, many cases, the, the amounts while they appear big uh, are, are real targeted. There's been um, early on, well, early on, you know, time's so weird. Um, uh, uh, In this cycle of money being available, uh, the earlier parts of it were available with a focus on cybersecurity and integrity of election systems, and more recent money has been focused on other parts of the system related to safeguarding the the system and responding to the COVID crisis, Um, And and one of the things I guess I would want your listeners to consider as they think about elections and the money that's been made available is that these aren't these aren't um, forever ongoing funding streams like you get for other parts of government. They're uh, one time or over a couple year years. Allocations, and it, it reminds me of the old adage that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And um, you know, thinking differently about how we resource elections, particularly given how increasingly complex they are to administer, rather than just responding to the crisis de jure, in, in terms of federal funding, uh, might be a better way to go
2: about this. So final question for for each of you is as you are no doubt aware there has been uh i think even more than usual this year uh heightened political re- rhetoric uh from both sides arguably uh expressing concern about safety and security of the 2020 election add in of course the 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 challenges of conducting an election in the midst of a pandemic um are you Hopeful that we have the ability to conduct a free and fair election. Should, for example, we have large scale outbreaks uh, in November, how 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 confident are you that that we're going to be able to to conduct a a, a, a good election?
0: I'll, um, I'll I'll jump in, and this is Mitchell again, and say by way of couching my comments, that our approach to our work is hyper-apolitical. Um right. w- We work with all kinds of different people, and we want to be honest brokers with all of them and um, engage authentically with all of them, and um, many of them have really opposing viewpoints about political things. Um, so, so so with that in mind um, I, I will say that, that there are real pressures and strains on the system right now um, but but if you think back and if you look at, some of the numbers that come out of the 1918 pandemic and the election that was held then. Mm. Um, and in some of the responses to that pandemic and voting, then you see some real similarities with the exception of the vote by mail piece, um, real similarities to the things that people were talking about. And, and one of the things that you did see though, in places that reported it and we have newspaper accounts of it is lower voter turnout. And, um, I would guess I'm I'm not good at prognosticating. I you never never ask me who's going to win an election. I'm always wrong. Um <laughs> but but I would guess we'll see some lower turnout than would be expected for a presidential election. But but I am um it, Aside from some really, you know, major constitutional crisis happening, which I, I don't anticipate, um, I'm, I'm very hopeful about our ability um, to have a, an election that, you know, to use your words, is free and fair, that has integrity, that allows the people who are allowed to vote in, and that those votes are counted and they're counted accurately. I'm very hopeful about that. I'm. I'm, I feel pretty confident about that. I don't know if you feel different, Kathleen. If you want to add something, Kathleen, (laughs) you hopeful too?
3: (laughs) Oh, I'm. I am. um, I'm known for being hopeful, but uh, this. um, (laughs) I am. I am extremely hopeful about this. I. I know that. uh, I'm confident that election integrity and security are at the top of mind for every election official. That they are. working diligently to, uh, put in place protocols that affect not, uh, or that ensure not only, not only election security, but public health. Um, and I, I, I would, I would want to just have your listeners know that, um, the public trust is something that these offices, um, and these people take, take personally and have, they have, um, They have in the past, and they're continuing to develop their own uh, sort of tools and relationships uh, to communicate to you as a voter um, about where you can go, about what you can do. And so, in the age of um, sort of massive, uh, the massive opportunity for misinformation or disinformation, um, going directly to the source to a local office and their website, uh, to understand what, what's possible, I think will be the, will be the way, will be the way to go. Um, there may be changes, right? There may be changes in procedures that, that need to happen. There may be, uh, needs to, you know, communicate that things will be different. Um, but, um, the, the need for integrity and security and the, and the public health aspect that's critical for public trust is something that election officials take to heart. So I'm very confident, very confident.
2: Uh, On that note, we don't have a lot of very hopeful and confident of late. Uh, um, (laughs) You are listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Kathleen Hale and Mitchell Brown, who are the authors of a terrific new book called How We Vote, innovation in American elections. And and particularly for political scientists and public administration folks who really are interested in that sort of nitty gritty of local administration and the means by which uh, actors with limited resources uh, undertake profoundly important exercises, uh, typically with seriousness of purpose. Uh, It really is one of those things that that I think inspires uh, hope and confidence more broadly in democratic processes. And for that, I am grateful. Uh, Kathleen and Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
3: Yeah, thank you for having us.